Bob Healy has always had a rich baritone. As a second-generation Irish lad growing up on the East Coast, singing was a passion. He was even encouraged to consider pursuing a career as a professional singer. But mindful of how competitive that world is, he thought it wise to walk a different path. Still, he never lost his love of singing, especially the song Danny Boy. While in high school, Bob chose to enlist in the Marine Reserves. Not long after, as fate would have it, on the faraway Korean Peninsula, North invaded South. Bob found himself bound for a distant land where he would be involved in one of the most consequential battles in U.S. military history, the Battle of Chosen Reservoir. Badly outnumbered and encircled by attacking Chinese forces, U.N. troops, predominantly Marines and U.S. Army, took heavy casualties. Enemy fire was not the only villain. Sub-zero temperatures meant almost nothing worked. The men who made it back to the front lines were nicknamed the Chosen Frozen or the Chosen Few. Bob made it back, but not before losing four friends and nearly losing his own life. This is the Honor, Thank, Inspire story of Bob Healy. When you enlisted in the Marines, in the, Mar- in the Reserves, you were 17 right. at that point. And right. did you realize at that time that Korea might be in your future? No, I had no idea. <laughs> uh, all of a sudden, uh, after our two-week stay that summer in uh, Camp Lejeune, the war broke out. And we all went back home, of course, and then waited to be uh, activated. And it didn't take them long to get us over there, I'll tell you. <laughs> and did, did you realize then when you're on your way over there that you would be in a world hotspot, that you were probably going to be seeing combat? Oh, I knew we were going into combat, but I had no idea of the severe weather we would run into. We didn't have the equipment. It was, you know, as I mentioned before, the Marine Corps was the last on a pecking order for equipment. So uh, we were wearing our greens uh, for the warmth because the greens were wool manufactured. And they finally got some equipment to us, but they gave us rubber uh, shoes that we had packing in it and so on. But, of course, with rubber, the feet sweats. And that's when we got the uh, frozen feet was from those sweats. You're with the Marines 1st Division, and when did the 1st Division arrive on the peninsula? They were on the peninsula before they were a division. They okay. were a brigade, and that's two regiments. And they plugged a hole in the in the uh, front line and saved the day, frankly, because the peninsula was going to be overrun. MacArthur wanted us to make the landing at Inchon. Well, I wasn't there yet, so I didn't make the landing. And that was just with two, two regiments. And then we joined up with them in the Chosen Reservoir. 
the Inchon invasion, which MacArthur had designed, uh, yep. was successful. The North Koreans were on the run, and the thinking was, tell me, uh, that we're going home by Christmas. We've got this thing. <laughs> yep. Well, we didn't know anything about the Chinese coming into the war. It was all North Korea. Right. But yeah. the Russians, of course, had a hand in this, too. Uh, they had a, a tank called a T-34, which was used all the way. I think some of the, the Russians are still using that tank, but we had nothing to stop it. So the only thing that was being developed was right there in Piccadilly Arsenal, and it was a 3.5 rocket. We had planes standing by, and they flew directly into Korea. So uh, we finally got something that could stop a T-34. In October 1950, China gets involved, and they start sending their uh, People's Volunteer Army and yep. uh, things change. And, yep. and, and they were very good at hiding themselves. Uh, we did get a couple of captives, and we told, you know, the uh, head man up with the, uh, our group that they, they were Chinese. Well, he didn't believe me. And then... He, he responded to MacArthur's aid, and he wouldn't tell him they were Chinese coming into the war. So we missed a couple of beats on that because we were spread out so much. And that's why I say with, uh, MacArthur saved the Marine Corps, but none of us <laughs> liked what he was doing with us. Right. Uh, and, of course, Truman said it's not a war, it's a police action. Right. So we got a couple of guys and painted a police badge on our tanks so everybody could see it. <laughs> I don't you think can't, you, you didn't, can't beat the brains. Right. <laughs> That's originality on the battlefield. Right. Yep. So the first division, the Marines are sent to the Chosen Reservoir, and you have uh, a single road. It's terribly rough terrain, and you're about to be involved in one of the most consequential battles in U.S. military history. And you're spread, like you said, you're spread thin, and it's ungodly cold, minus, oh. minus 34. So did any of your equipment work at all? Well, that's an interesting point. M1 was the major weapon for the infantry. That's the rifle. Uh and we had these carbines, which were very small, and uh, a lot of the tankers carried them. Well, carbines ended up being no good at all. And the M1s, they are um, uh, trying to fire on them. They, they would freeze up. So this is hard to believe. This is 1950. And we're using Springfield rifle 1903 to fire because it had a bolt action that we could use and with our hands. And that saved the day for us. Uh, 
But of course, we in the uh, heavy weapons carried carbines. So we weren't happy about that, but if we could have gotten some of those O3s, we would have used them. So how how did you how did you sleep? How did you function? Your the, the, a lot of the trucks wouldn't start. You have to keep them running during the night. The everything would freeze yep. up. You how did you how exactly. you function in that environment? Well, we had sleeping bags uh, that were pretty good, but we uh, learned early on you better have some people watching over you or. Uh, you could get in trouble. And we did have quite a few Marines were banned it because they didn't have a sentry watching over them while they were asleep. But it was cold, <laughs> I could tell you. Every time it gets cold here, I feel it right down to my bones. It reminds you then, I guess, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How did the battle begin? Well, you know, that, that was a, a curious thing. Uh, we uh, positioned uh, Fox Company, for instance, up on a hill overlooking the major pass we'd have to go through to get in and get out, because that's where the, the Chinese would go for uh, to try to take it over, and then we'd, they'd be shooting down at us. Fox Company had most brave people that I have ever met. And a buddy of mine got the Congressional Medal of Honor out of that, uh, Hector Caffarata. I thought he was Polish, and it wasn't until I read The Coldest War, I found out he was Peruvian. And this guy was a giant of a guy. And I said, wait a minute, Peruvians have gotta be, they're small people. Well, he wasn't. He, he was a, an exception. And he just passed away last year. What did he do to earn the medal? Uh, unbelievable things. First of all, he had a buddy with him in the foxhole. A buddy lost his sight. And when he lost his sight, he says, I'll, I'll feed you your rifle and ammo, and which he did. Hector kept them firing, so he never stopped firing, and he he really did have great uh, ability to to find him, the Chinese. He did get wounded an aid station, not like the ones you saw on television. I could tell you, mm-hmm. the aid station uh, the tent, and it was uh, fired upon at the level where they thought the, the, the wounded would be laying on cots. And so as a result of that, they were laying on straw on the ground, the wounded were. And the doctor who was really good at saving a lot of our guys stood out of the tent for just a minute to get some fresh air. And the sniper got him right through the throat. So it was. If you got wounded, it was a wasn't a, a situation where you might not make it back.
they were coming back, trying to fight their way back, and the, the snipers would pick up on the drivers of the different transportation. And uh, nobody would want to drive the truck because they were... Uh, Targets. They, they were a target for them. I don't know how. You know, the, there was a, a gully or a high point on that road, and they blew it up. And the Chinese did. And we didn't know how we are going to get across it. Well, the... Uh, Army engineers, God bless them, they came up with a plan and they brought them in by helicopters and they put the members down on the opening and we were able to take all our tanks out and our trucks out and so on. But they were pretty brave people in there. And doing it in that kind of weather, oh my God. I've read that the Chinese attacked in human waves and particularly at night did did you witness that were you part of that oh yeah yep what was that like first time well first time i grabbed my rifle because they uh they had these uh loudspeakers and they were you know going da, 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 like a, getting them build up to to uh charge and bugles, and so this was all coming over the loudspeakers, but we were smart enough early on to put wire around our positions and hang empty cans on it. So that if they were trying to sneak up on us, they would hit the cans and we know they were there. So we had machine gunners who were firing the the barrels were getting so worn out and heavy machine guns, and this is not a nice thing to tell you, but they were freezing up also. So how we got around that, anybody had to go to the John, uh, they would pee into the the heavy uh, machine guns and warm them up again. So, uh, that's insane how we had to go through like that. Well, you got to improvise, I guess. I never went to boot camp, but the Marine Corps does train us very well to make decisions on the spot and to be able to fire every weapon at our command. Mm-hmm. So uh, when somebody would get wounded as a machine gunner, another guy would take his place right away. And that saved the fox company uh, quite a bit because any of the guys that were killed, this is terrible to relate, but they would put, if they were dead, they put them in front of the machine gunner and so the, the Koreans were shooting into a dead man. And so we didn't have to do try to dig foxholes in that completely solid ice terrain there. Um, and the guy, one guy, uh, went back and visited all their, their families of those guys that were killed and apologized. 
And he said, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for your son. So uh, a lot of things went on. We, One of our group, because uh, I mentioned before, we were, didn't have a piece of equipment we needed. But one group went down early on to an army depot and stole an army six by it. And they got it painted overnight. And in the morning, the, the uh, army had their police, and I forget what they're called, looking for the truck. And if they leaned against the truck we had there, because they would have paint would come off on them because <laughs> it would be totally dry. Right. <laughs> so uh, got away with it. And yeah. We sure needed that to carry mammal. Let me bring you to the day that you're wounded. You're with a, a crew of in a crew of five, and you're operating a, a heavy mortar. Right. Uh, and where are you positioned when that day begins? We're up by the airstrip that I mentioned before, uh, but not close enough to be able to walk to it. But we're trying to protect around planes coming in and out. It's a it's but, a it's a heavy piece of equipment too, and you didn't really, oh yeah. you didn't have the ability to kind of roll it where you needed. You had to carry it, right? Right. Well, four guys would carry it. That's why we're five five man unit, hmm. and so we carried that damn thing all over. So you're uh, set up and you're firing it, and what happens? There was a hill there, and there was a a young kid that we were giving chocolates to. He would stand up on the side of the hill and move every once in a while. Well, they're using him as a spotter to line up their uh, mortars. And sure enough, they we finally figured it out. And one of the guys shot the kid. That that was hard to take because he was young, with his whole life ahead of him, but. He was causing us a lot of pain. <laughs> so they had your position then at some point. Yeah. They yeah. fire a mortar round in your direction, and it right. hits. Yep. And uh, as I said, I was just going back home to get more ammo when we had the direct hit on the gun. Just uh, horrible. Uh, to lose those four guys. You're, you're you get kind of close to people when you're in combat. Absolutely. So your four uh, your four mates are gone. They're killed. Yep. They're killed outright. And, and you take shrapnel to the head? Right. right. Tell me what happens then. Well, I yell out, Corman, of course. That's the worst thing to say, Corman. Because they're looking for them. The, the Chinese were. But I got one, thank God, I didn't know who he was. But he uh, patched up my, my wound as best he could, called in a helicopter, which they, this was the first time they were using helicopters to take out wounded, and got me on it, which I told you was just a, a, a mesh holder on the outside of the helicopter. They got me to the landing strip, and they determined, you know, I would live if we got taken care of, of course. 
So they put me on a plane when they were much worse wounded than me, but they didn't think they were going to survive. So I was one of the lucky ones who got on the plane. Because a lot of those people really never made it back. But before before you got on the plane and the corpsman had worked on you, uh, if if it had not been as cold as it was, you would have bled out. I would have bled out. Yep. And it was so cold. Two ways about it. But it was so cold. So in this case, the cold was your ally. It basically it, sure was. it uh, congealed your blood. Yep. Yep. Lucky well, in so many ways. When what, I got back to the hospital there in. Uh, Kyoto, they were asking you, what can we serve you? I says, I have a, just a hunger for a vanilla milkshake. I said, I know you, you can't have, have it because milk is not one of the staples in Japan. And sure enough, they had milk. They made me a vanilla milkshake and that tasted like a million bucks. So, um, as a lucky guy in so many ways, uh, but they, the one problem with the shrapnel was it was so close to the brain, they couldn't get it all out. So uh, I was operated on when I got into Newport Naval Hospital, and they got it out. So has was all of the shrapnel removed from your head? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you are lucky. Oh, uh-huh, was I ever... <laughs> When you're treated in Japan, I, I think you told me you got you were down to 115 pounds. So you're you're pretty right. much you're a ghost of your former self at that point. Yep. Yep. And when you were in Japan, were you uh, were you told about what was going on back in Korea and the Marine withdrawal from Chosen? No, I had a I had to read that, and a lot of the information I told you. It's taken from a book called Coldest War. That's when I found out what they went through after I was gone. There was a whole section dedicated to Fox Company. Uh, They were rescued by uh, a Marine company that had to fight their way to them. Uh, They were running out of people and uh, running out of ammo. And a very brave helicopter pilot was trying to get more ammo into them and got shot down while doing it. So uh, I, I was the luckiest guy in the world. Tell me about Tootsie Rolls. Well, Tootsie Rolls, again, were dropped by a plane to us, three cases. And it was all a mix-up between when they were running low, we had a book of the words we could say into 
the uh, radios. And so Tootsie Roll was the substitute for we need more ammo. The guy on the supply side, which was in Japan, he apparently didn't have the book that told him what the word for the day was because we didn't want a Chinese to hear what we were saying. So he just took it literally and ordered three cases of Tootsie Rolls to be dropped. <laughs> what did you say? What, what would you do when you, the Tootsie Rolls are landing around you then? Uh, well, we saw what they were. Um, you know, our first reaction was, oh, it was we, a lot of cursing went on. <laughs> you know. And, you know, one guy said, what are we supposed to do, throw them at them? And I said, it'd probably be successful because they'll probably break their, their mouth or trying to do something with them. Uh, but that saved the day in, in reality. And the president of Tootsie Roll didn't know that portion of it. He said, I know they, you got the Tootsie Roll, but uh, that whole story. And that story is on the wall of the Tootsie Roll factory. Mm-hmm. And they're very proud of that. Um, well, they did in many and, ways come in handy for you guys, right? I mean, you, yep. you, you get the sugar how, rush. Sugar rush, and you, I think you also yeah. used them to patch some holes, I read. There were bullet yep. holes. and Yep. So, Tootsie Rolls. You, you do what you got. <laughs> <laughs> but that must have been a golden moment when you're there and you're looking at these cases and they've got Tootsie Rolls in them and you're in the midst yep. of awful combat and freezing cold. <laughs> yep. Uh, I imagine they, always a, they always had this expression, F up. I think you probably heard it. Yes. And uh, that was one of them. <laughs> yeah. And uh, FUBAR. Right. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, when you're in Japan, once your wounds are, are patched up and, and you're done with combat service, you, you didn't leave the Marines. You stayed in. And where'd you go after uh, Japan? Um, after Japan and... Um, I, of course, was in the hospital, and I was security at the Naval War College. I got transferred down to Camp Lejeune at the end of my tour there, and they were putting together uh, the six Marines to go to uh, the Mediterranean. So I, after being wearing blues uniform uh, every day at the security when I was at the war college I didn't want any more of that so I said yeah, I'm ready to go somewhere mm-hmm. so uh, uh, we had a, a battalion was being sent over there because there was some problem with the, the Lebanon it quieted down so we went on a goodwill tour and, and made landings all around the Mediterranean to uh, train. Now I got a couple stripes, so I'm in charge of a, a squad. We landed on Crete, and Crete is a volcanic island. We had a bit down for a night. Now, th- this is all lava li- all over the, the place that, that hardened, of course, but I found a very sandy area that we could bed down. So 
I bed down. We had these Greek soldiers up on the hill laughing. And I said, I wonder what they're laughing at. Well, I found out we were in a dry creek bed. <laughs> oh, boy. And it rained overnight. And uh, I see my shoes going out to look at So I said, oh, this is going to be a hard thing to live down. <laughs> After you complete your service, um, you went on, you came home, you're patched up, you have a successful career in business with Union Oil, later Unical, but Semper Fidelis, there's always a need within the Marine family uh, to see and a a need to to help others, and so you filled that need by setting up a Marine scholarship. Can you you tell me how that worked? this is where it gets interesting. I'm up at a fairly good level now in the company, and we were in negotiations to sell our uh, one of our uh, operation in Claret, New Jersey. And uh, the guy we were talking to, the president, happened to be a Marine, I found out. We became good friends. And then when we started this uh, scholarship group, he asked me to be on the Scarlet Gold Committee. And we were the planners of the major uh, dinner every year. We had the actual ball. Uh, I walked in and there's Lucati standing there and he was a major general and he had ribbons coming out of his ears. And I saw him, and I became 17 years old all over again. I said, good evening, General Sir. And he says, it's it's slow, Bob. And I said, I can't. I'm back to 17. You were God. <laughs> <laughs> so he started laughing. But we stayed friends, and, you know, he's up in years. So uh, I would pick him up. He lived in Ivernus and drive him down to our birthday, Marine Corps birthday every year at the Union League Club. And he was really appreciative of that. And then he passed away and I found out, he never told me much about what he was doing, but he had 120 combat missions in Korea. And he had, Ted Williams in his wing, they call it. And I asked him about that, and he said he has such great uh, timing. He says that's why he was a, an ace, and that's why he was such a good baseball player. But he was angry because he was right in the middle of his career when they brought him back into the service. Yes, he was, right? The scholarship fund benefits uh, marine families, and tell yes. me, tell me how that works. And it, it's a handsome, well, it's a handsome award. Yes, it's uh, thirty thousand dollar scholarships that go to sons and daughters of marines 
who have lost limbs or head wounds that cannot afford college for the kids. It's not by testing them do they get the scholarship. They automatically get it. And if they don't want to use it for college, we'll pay for them going into a technical school. Uh, how that happened was, and how we started, was a Medal of Honor winner could not afford to send their kids to college. And we thought that was wrong. How many people have benefited from the scholarships over the years? Oh, quite a few. (laughs) You've given back in other ways. One of your sons was born with disabilities, and you spent your adult life working to find better means of helping him as well as others who are facing similar challenges. And so that led to your involvement in an organization called Avenues to Independence. Would you you tell me about that? They are an agency that has residential. So what they have done, they try to make them clients like part of the, the community. We do have two... Uh, apartment buildings that we use, but they're small, and we prefer them getting out to the community. So we have a bulk of the, our clients now in private houses that people leave us for that purpose when they're passing on. But another one of my heroes who was uh, he got he was a pilot on a B twenty five that. Uh, crash landed in a Japanese held island and he was up in a tree he couldn't get down at the moment and he saw his whole crew beheaded by a Japanese I said to myself how could you ever get over something like that well he became extremely successful in the insurance business we asked him if he'd like to make a donation. Well, he set up a foundation, and his his granddaughter is running it now. And we were able to buy a, an, an office building uh, for the, our headquarters. We also built a work center, or bought a work center. We had to invest a million four. And we raised that money, would you believe it, from the Park Ridge residents. And now they have a state-of-the-art building which has commercial kitchen in it to learn the kids to learn how to cook. They got a music room with a piano in it. They have um, a big room for dancing that we can turn into a, uh, for meetings if we needed to. Uh, we have all kinds of workout materials so they can stay in good shape. But you've had measure, uh, measurable success over the years, and you've seen that in, in your own son, who's in his 50s now? Yep, he's 52. And it's, and meant, a lot, it's meant a lot to him. Yes. He has his own computer. Uh, he writes to me almost every day and things that are golly golly goop but I can follow it as 
but that gives him something to do too. Right, but he's Christ. he's profoundly deaf. And, yes, and yet he's able to communicate with you. Yep. You went on Honor Flight back in uh, Honor Flight Chicago back in 2014, and right. I, wa- I want to know if you'd been to the Korean War Memorial before that trip. Yes. When you went on your Honor Flight, what feelings did that bring back to you? Oh, uh, just being with those guys. You know, I I felt a connection there that you. You never get loose from It's always there. The first monument they took us to was World War II. And they had an army general there. We had a long time to talk about what went on in Korea at that time. And then we went to the Korea monument. But I almost got in trouble. Uh, what they do, of course, they have a band playing all the different hymns. And they they had a wheelchair for me, so I'm coming out in a wheelchair one after the other. And they see my my cap and they start playing the Marine Corps hymn. I said, Stop the stop the uh, the guy who was pushing me, I said, Stop right here. Hmm. I got up and I was standing at attention. He said, You gotta move on. There's a lot of people behind you. I said, They're playing my hymn and I never would not stand in that attention for my hymn. So uh, I was absolutely stunned at the number of people that were there to greet us. My wife, who is a very clever lady, took my picture that I had when I first joined the Corps in my dress blues and blew it up and people had signs holding this up. People I've known for years, all different ways. I had members of my choir, the agency involved. That. And I had the most letters that they handed out. It was a huge trap, amount of letters. I kept them all, of course, so I could go back and read them. Uh, thanking me for my service, which uh, every time somebody thanks me for a service, I say to them, it was an honor to serve. It wasn't a chore. We're 70 years out now from the day you nearly died in Korea, and you'd mentioned it earlier, the police action that Truman called it. I wonder if it distresses you that our involvement over the years has been called a, a police action, a, a conflict, when it was, in fact, in your first, your first-hand evidence of this, it was a war. Yep. Is that bothersome? But it's bothersome, and also bothersome about the Russian involvement in the war. Now you've done nothing to slap their hand, uh, and. One thing I found with the Korean veterans, they don't talk about what they went through. I decided to write uh, everything down that I, I went through because my kids didn't know anything about it. 
So I gave them each one a booklet with all the things I went through, so they have it. The only time veterans really did tell stories is with another veteran. They won't do it any other time, I find. Speaking of that, the other thing I do, every year I got our Irish choir to go down to Heinz and volunteer the time to give them a concert. Some of the guys, of course, are pretty banged up down there. And if you want to feel lucky, just going down there in the lobby of Heinz, you'll see more missing limbs, guys in wheelchairs. Brings it all back. So that's something we've done every year. That's fabulous. I sing for him. I sing Danny Boy, of course. For oh, him. give me a give me a few bars of Danny Boy. Oh, Danny Boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling. Ah, uh, you more, are you are a rich baritone. I've been singing for a while. <laughs> that's good. That's all right. That's the stone. You hit it cold. You hit it right. Oh. Uh, well, you lost friends over there too. You lost those four mates that were in your your crew, and I I know yep. I know you think of them from time to all time. All the time, yeah. yeah. Especially uh, at our birthday when we had the missing man table, I just pictured them all being at that table. Well, thanks for your service, Bob, and, and, and thanks for chatting with me and Semper Fi. Semper Fi, always. We hope you found today's Honor, Thank, Inspire episode to be moving and meaningful. If you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.